So how do you end a book? We have been exposed to one of the more lengthy narratives for a a character in Scripture like David. A huge amount of uh, Bible real estate is given to David. And, And how then do you end a book, a book that has been looking forward to David's arrival? If you remember Hannah's prayer was about one day that the anointed would be exalted is her ending of her prayer, her desire that there would be this king who would ultimately be the rescuer and helper for Israel. And it has all then pointed to David. It has all been pointing to him as king and as ruler. And so ultimately then how do you end a book and how do you end the life of David? And the answer of how you end the life of David and how you end this book is with the gospel. 2 Samuel 24 is one of the clearest displays given for the gospel. And an appropriate ending, as everything has been pointing to the necessity of a king who would reign in righteousness and bring hope and healing to God's people. Now, if you know 2 Samuel 24, you might say, I don't think that chapter has a whole lot of gospel hope and healing. But let me show you how beautiful this ending is and why it becomes the the perfect cap to the life of David. In in chapter 24 in verse 1, uh, the scene opens and it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Well, that's a lot to deal with right there in that little verse. And you could probably do a whole lesson on the theology of everything that just loaded up with. There's a lot that just was said there. First of all, again, yet again, Israel is angering God. Yet again, we're seeing a problem of Israel. And the last time we saw that probably goes back to chapter 21. Remember, chapters 21 through 24 are an epilogue. They're out of sequence, but they're there to kind of wrap the book up. And in chapter 21, We saw the anger of the Lord against Israel in a famine coming because of what Saul and his descendants had done to the Gibeonites and and the problem of violating that covenant. We saw David making atonement and doing the right thing so that Israel would no longer have God's wrath upon them. Same scenario is being presented here as the anger of the Lord appears yet one more time. But the thing that is really striking that shows surely kind of raises the the radar a little bit when you read it is that the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them to say, go and number the people. What is God doing? (laughs) And you are inciting David to do something that is going to now bring about a consequence upon the people of Israel. Let's talk about this for a minute. It is interesting that the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1 states this as Satan incited David to number Israel. So interesting perspectives here are at play where Samuel's account says God did this. Chronicles account says uh, that Satan did this. But I hope that we would see that ultimately there is a very strong parallel to a number of figures in the scriptures. In particular, Job is a a very strong parallel. If I were to ask you who afflicted Job, 
you might quickly say, well, Satan did chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 7. But don't forget that God said he did. God also took uh, accountability for that. In Job 2, verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So... Did Satan do it? Yep. Did God do it? Yep. (laughs) They both did. And I think it's fair to say that's what you see coming out right here is a picture of that same concept of is Satan underneath this? Yes. But ultimately, God is underneath this. And one of the important keys to keep in mind throughout this chapter that I will remind us of a couple of times is verse 1. This is the key to understanding what's going on. Israel is worthy of judgment. That's how this starts. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That that is very important to everything that we're going to look at. That God needs to bring judgment on Israel. There needs to be some consequence for the sinning that has been done. And so God then is ultimately behind what is going to unfold. The thing that I think we often struggle with is the idea that God can use Satan to accomplish his purposes. That that just becomes mind-bending. But the book of Job makes that clear. And let me give you another figure that makes that clear. Judas. Was God behind this? Certainly. Was Satan behind it? John 13 says so. Satan entered into his heart and he went about doing what he did. Can God use Satan to accomplish his purposes and plan? Absolutely. In fact, that's what gives us comfort And confidence is the sovereignty of God over those kinds of things and for God to be able to do those kinds of things. By the way, for Judas to do that, does that mean that his free will was lost? No. Judas made the choices that he made. Satan is using Judas and God's plan is being accomplished. David has a choice. He still has a choice. Satan is going to use that. And God is going to use that for his purpose. And that is, I think, the lens for how we should look at verse 1. Is ultimately, God needs to do something to Israel for their sinning. And it's going to come then by the hand of, of Satan into David. And that's what you see then play out. In verse 2, we're told that David then calls for Joab and tells Joab, I want you to number all the tribes of Israel. I want you to number all the people from Dan to Beersheba, which means basically from top to bottom, from north to south. It would be like if I said from Miami to Seattle or from sea to shining see that is getting everybody along the list all of Israel is to be counted and I think it is really interesting what Joab says to David I've constantly told you Joab's an interesting fellow listen to Joab here in verse 3 where he says to the king may the Lord your God Add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord of the King still see it. 
But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? Even Joab is saying, why are we doing this, David? (laughs) This is not a good idea. And I think based on Joab's answer, we are getting a sense that David just wants to see the numbers. Look at my great kingdom and look at the peace that has been brought to it. Joab, I want a census to be done. Just count all the people. And it appears that the reasoning behind it has no value except David wants to be able to enjoy the fact of look at the numbers. Because that's how Joab responds. Joab responds is simply... God's the reason why the numbers are so large. May may God multiply it a hundred times over, but why would you do such a thing? David, it's not about you, it's about God. David, it doesn't matter how big the numbers are. You don't need to concern yourself with the size of the kingdom. The numbers are ultimately meaningless. I think Joab is trying to tell David, don't trust the numbers. Who cares about the numbers? It's irrelevant how big we are. God is the reason why we are in this position. And may God multiply us all the more. And I think it's an interesting temptation. Is there not a temptation to trust in the numbers? Physical data. I'm a former accountant. Numbers guy, right? What <laughs> numbers? We want data. And think about how we do that. We, we trust in the numbers. We trust in the numbers. Look at the bank account that we have. Trust in the numbers in terms of our paycheck. Trust in the numbers because we've got our retirement nest egg. Trust in the health numbers. Just think about all the things that we boil down to looking at it physically in terms of the numbers. I'm only okay because I have X amount of dollars and I make X amount of money and I have all of this laid up for me in the future with X retirement and so therefore I'm doing okay. We we totally trust numbers. We, We easily do that kind of thing. And one of the messages that has been clearly reminded to the people and to us as we've gone through this book is God has tried to teach us about not trusting in the physical and not trusting in the numbers and giving a sense of it doesn't matter how much you have because God can take that away or give you more. It's not dependent upon you. Think about what we saw in our study, 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord and He will give it into our hands. It's a huge declaration that was made there in regards to David. David said those words. That's the Goliath scene. Who cares that they are so big and so mighty and so massive? We have God on our side. And numbers don't matter. Joab's saying that to David right now. Who who cares how big we are? God's the one who can multiply us even more. So what about the numbers? 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Love Jonathan's words. It may be the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. God doesn't care about the numbers. And we're not supposed to care about the numbers either. I would think 
2020 will be the new numbers for us to remember how the numbers don't matter. Is all of the things that we planned and thought and saved we're going to do, and it was all going to go swimmingly this year, we're all completely blown to bits, which was just a reminder to us, you don't have control and who cares about the numbers? It doesn't matter. It can all be gone in a moment, in just a flash. It can all change. And that's essentially what Joab is trying to get David to understand right here. Don't be tempted to trust the numbers. Don't count the people. David, you're not the reason for the numbers. But verse 4, the king's word prevailed. The king's word prevailed. In verses 4 through 9, we see the, the census being taken. The count is made. The numbers are tallied up. And I want you to notice something amazing about verse 10. It says in verse 10, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, this is an important scene for David because this represents a huge transformation in David's life. If you remember the last time that we have a sin recorded for David, it's the Bathsheba sin. That's the the big E on the I chart for the book, the big stain in David's life. And remember what David does when he commits that sin. He covers up that sin and he's pleased with the death of Uriah and he's not convicted of his sin until a prophet comes to him and tells a story about basically you took from this poor man and how dare you do such a thing as the wealthy one that God has made you. It took a huge working For David to come to that, I've sinned against God. Notice this time, he doesn't cover up his sin. His heart is immediately struck and it didn't require a prophet to tell him. And he immediately prays for forgiveness. You see guilt immediately come across David and he understands what he's done. Verse 10, I've sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. No prophet came and told him that. He's transformed quite a bit at this point. And he's not trying to hide what he's done. And he's not trying to change the outcome. I think there is something so monumental about what we see in David where he has learned from his past failures. He has learned from his previous sins and now is quickly admitting his guilt and admitting his foolishness. We talked about that in our Sunday morning class to be able to say to God, that was dumb on my part. I am foolish. He says it right here in his prayer to God. I've sinned greatly and I've acted foolishly. He admits it. He can confesses it he owns it he doesn't make excuses about it he doesn't dodge it and it's all from his own heart without anybody having to come to him and again i think this is part of the characterization of why david is a man after god's own heart a reason why all kings after david will be measured against the stature of david not because david is sin free 
But look at his heart. And look at his transformation. And look how much he cares about God. And look how much he cares about his sin. And how much he is moved in a process in dealing with his sin to be able to come before God with all of this. And so a beautiful picture of what he's learned. I've done foolishly. And that is what we admit when we come before God. When we come to God with our sin, I'm guilty. I've sinned. I've sinned greatly against God and I have acted foolishly. That is the kind of heart that God wants us to have. In this event, then, this leads to a prophet coming to David, not to convict him in verse 11. He's already convicted himself. So a contrast to 2 Samuel earlier where we saw David sin and Nathan has to confront and convict him. He's already convicted. And so the prophet now comes to David with a really interesting choice. Really interesting choice. He tells David in verse 12, I have three things to offer you. You have a choice that can be made. And your choice then will ultimately be what the consequences are for your sin. You you can be forgiven by God, but there are consequences that must come. And so verse 13, here David is the choice you need to make. Will it be three years of famine to come upon the land? Will you flee for three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or will there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So David... How do you want your punishment today? (laughs) Interesting. Which would you like? Three years, three months, three days. Three years of famine? Three months of, of on the run? Or three days of pestilence? Don't forget, as you read this, you go, wow, this is unbelievable. Don't forget the key I told you. Remember, all of this is because Israel has kindled... God's anger. So don't forget that in terms of the punishments that are happening here. So all of this is because Israel has sinned against God, has kindled God's anger, and thus the consequences are going to be broader in scope than just David. That this is why all this has ultimately come about. So what will you choose? I mean, think about that for a minute. Which would you pick? Well, you want three years of famine? Well, like think we have any sense of what that would look like we, we didn't like it when there was kind of a week where it was hard to get food you know can you imagine three years of going to the grocery store and it's just decimated and empty and there's nothing just three years of famine want to be three years on the run being chased by your enemies every day no sleep no rest go 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 three straight months three days of pestilence plague think of plague just killing It's no good option here. But listen to what David says in verse 14. David says in verse 14, he says to the prophet Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. I love it. I just love this answer. What are you going to choose, David? And David's answer is, 
I just need to fall on the mercy of God. (laughs) I'm going to put it in God's hands. And I want you to think about the reality of that. Think about if you would have that same mentality because he says, I would rather fall in the hands of God than in the hands of another human. Do you have the same perspective of God? I think that is an interesting way that David looks at God. He does not look at God and go, God is a terrifying, wrathful God. I don't want to be in His hands. Give me the human. No. He says, I don't want to be in the hands of a human. Give me the hands of God. Wow. He really has a relationship with God. He understands the character of God. He understands the mercy and the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. That he says, don't put me in human hands. Who knows what that would be? Put me in the hands of God for his mercy is great. And friends, that is the best response to sins is to give ourselves to God. Fall on the hands of God. Plead for his mercy to be like that uh, tax collector in Luke 18 who could not even raise his eyes, but just simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what David is doing right here. God, I'm putting myself in your hands. I'm trusting you and your mercy is great. You decide. But I'm not going to be in the hands of man. Not going to be in human hands. No way. I'm going to be in the hands of God. So what now unfolds in verse 15 is the pestilence in the land. Plague goes over Israel And it says there in verse 15 that from Dan to Beersheba, just here in the morning, we have 70,000 people dying. Just imagine. We're we're caught up in the numbers right now in terms of our plague. Here's David watching in his kingdom. The numbers come in. 70,000 Israelites dead. Because you numbered the people, David. It's the consequence. That's now what's going to happen. And I think it is so interesting how the rest of the book plays out. Now, let's pause here for a minute so that we can orient what how this is going to play out, because this is written really weird. But it's not that weird if you catch what's going on. You can think about how many times you watch a TV show or you watch a movie where it will show you the ending And then it will suddenly back up and go, now let me show you how we got there. And then you get like almost to the very end and they show you that ending. You didn't realize you were really seeing the ending when you were first watching it. You're like, I have no idea what just happened. And then then, then that scene comes back in at the end. You go, oh, God. That's what's happening here. Verse 16 is the ending. And now it's going to then show you why did that happen? Verse 16. And the, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy his vision, 70,000 people dead. And now Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. This is the place where God's name is. This is the future location of the temple. This is the capital city. And this destroying angel is about to wipe Jerusalem out. Verse 16, the Lord relented from the calamity 
and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. I want you to see, here's the ending. God just suddenly intervenes right before the destruction of Jerusalem and says, that's it. That's enough. Let the plague stop. Let the destruction stop. No more. And you read that and the big hanging question is, why did it stop? Remember, all of this is consequence. The anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel and David has sinned. So why is God putting the brakes on it? Why is he stopping all of this? Why is he telling the angel, stay your hand, that's enough, no more. Verse 17. And this shows you that we're backward. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. See, we're backward now. We already told you that it stopped. And now we're moving backward and going, now here's what David said when he saw the angel doing this. So verse 17, here's what what David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel striking the people. Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David is interceding and pleading on behalf of the people. When the angel goes about destroying and people are dying by the plague, David is praying to God and saying, God, no, they're just my sheep. Let them be spared. Let it just be upon me and my father's house. But why does the Lord listen to that? Because remember, this is a necessary judgment. Why would God stop? Okay, David's praying, but David is the cause of the sin. So how can we listen to him? Why would God stop at all? Keep going. Verse 18. And Gad, that's the prophet, came that day to David and said, Go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Iruna the Jebusite. And so David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And from verse, I'll just give you what verses 20 to to 23, David just ends up at Aruna's place and tells him there in in, uh, verse verse, uh, 21, um, I need to build an altar here. You can imagine how this scene goes, because Aruna's like, why is the king here? What are you doing here? Good to see you, but he's paying homage on the ground and words. Here's King David. Why are you here? I need to build an altar here. That's what the prophet told me to do. And Aruna says something I think really interesting where he says, well, if you need to build an altar here, I'll give you everything you need. Here's my threshing floor. We'll use the the wood from the yokes of the oxen for the wood to, to, for the offering here. Let me give you all the supplies that you need. You can imagine. I mean, if David comes and says, not only, hey, I'm the king and here's what I want you to do, you can be like, sure. But this will stop the plague. Here, whatever you need, whatever you need, you take it, use it, build the altar. But listen to what David says. In verse 24, the king said to Aruna. No, but I will buy it from you for a price. 
I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. David says, no, no. This offering needs to be paid for. And I'm going to buy this threshing floor and I'm going to buy the supplies and I'm going to buy everything that's necessary for the burnt offering here. Verse 25, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Oh my, that is the gospel right there. The Lord is pictured as relenting because the the king was making intercession and he pays a price and offers sacrifices to God. And I think that is so amazing of a way to speak about the final story for David is not to be stuck on the fact that he sinned, but that the gospel was on display in the final record of his life. That the picture is, here he is as the king of Israel, interceding for the sheep of Israel, paying the high price so that an offering could be made to be able to deal with sin. In verse 25, the Lord responds and the plague is averted. I want you to see not only how clearly Christ is foreshadowed in this, which is obvious for Christ our King is going to come and do the exact same thing, make intercession on our behalf, pay the high price of his own blood, and then offer himself as the sacrifice for sin to avert our disaster, to avert what we deserve because of our sins. But I want to press this gospel message even further. How did David know to do this? How did David know that what he needed to do was go to Aruna's threshing floor and build an altar there? And by building that altar there and making that sacrifice, atonement could be made because God told him to. This is the beauty of the gospel because it's not that we've sinned and now we deserve the wrath of God and what are we going to do? God comes in and says, you deserve wrath, but I'm going to show you how you can avoid that. I'm going to send a messenger, Prophet Gad, and he's going to tell you what needs to happen so that this can stop. So that this doesn't have to happen. That this doesn't need to continue. God explains what needs to be done. That is the beauty of what happens here. Verse 1, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. 
Lord, why don't you just let Israel go down in flames and in rubble then? The destroyed angel is raising his hand against Jerusalem. Why not let all the people die by the wrath of God and the plague? Why not just let it all go? Because God loves his people too much. And he can't do that. And so verse 16 was the conclusion. God tells the angel to stop. It's enough. But why was it enough? Because the king made intercession for the people. Paid the price that was necessary to make atonement. And offered it up before God. Exactly as God had instructed to do. That is why David could say. I will not put myself in the hands of humans. I will put myself in the hands of God. As his own words say, for his mercy is great. The gospel explodes in the final paragraph of this book. Because David has been our representative of what our future anointed king would be that ultimately all the scriptures were hoping for. All longing for the day when the new David, the new Moses would come and make intercession for the people. And in a glorious way, you see Jesus doing that very thing. Who comes to this earth, pays the price, offers up his life that makes intercession for us so that God can say, it's finished. It's enough. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a merciful and amazing God. And it is stunning to see your love on display like we see here in chapter 24. Oh God, I pray that we would see how deeply you love us. And how truly you do not desire for us to perish at all. And that you have made every way possible for us to be saved. You've done everything that you can so that we could be reconciled to you. Oh Lord, thank you so much for sending us the true king. For sending us Jesus as the one who would offer up his own life. To be the perfect sacrifice that we need. Thank you for sharing that thank you for revealing that to us and thank you god that you are the very answer to our problem we deserve your wrath we deserve your judgment god thank you so much for your love and god your mercy is great and may that always impress our hearts and cause us to live more faithfully for you in the days ahead than we have in the past In Jesus' name, amen. There's abundant grace for us that you'd come to Jesus and see what he has done for you as the ultimate display of God's love. God has proved his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. Anyway, we can help you respond to the great gospel. We encourage you to come and do that now while we stand and while we sing.